Hello and welcome. My name is Raj Basord. I'm a consultant psychiatrist and welcome to this podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And we literally are from the Royal College of Psychiatrists today because we are speaking to you from the HQ building in Tower Hill. And joining me today is Sue Bailey, the current president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. So Sue, tell me a bit about this building and the move from Belgrave Square. Well, it's been a very exciting period for the college, um, exciting and slightly anxiety-provoking in equal measure, I would say. So we moved from Belgrave Square in October, and we managed to get all the staff in from both buildings. So we had staff in a building in Oldgate, staff in Belgrave Square. Although the Belgrave Square was beautiful, it was not really fit for purpose. And we've now got everybody in the new building, and we've done it without it costing the members a penny. We know it's a different location at Tower Hill, but there are lots of wonderful things to see around Tower Hill if you just go out and seek them. And we've got the staff settled into the new building, far better conditions for them to work in. We've got a fantastic members area, which I suggest everybody comes in to use. We've got people coming around from local um, mental health trust who come in here quite a lot. We've got a fantastic uh, cafe downstairs. And we've got a library and archives that you can now more readily access if you want to come and do some research or just read about things. And historically, what about that relationship between members of the college and their headquarters? Have they tended not to come and visit their headquarters? And what are your thoughts about that? I think probably they have tended not to visit, and I think there's a set of reasons for that. I think some people would say, oh, well, that's headquarters, couldn't possibly go in there. Uh, being a Mancunian, I might comment that it's some distance from many parts of the country, therefore you need a reason to come in. I think this building allows you to come in and spend proper time here. Lots of things going on in the evening, evening lectures, art festivals, medfests, lots of social events. Just want it to become a vibrant part of the community in this area and I just want more people to visit and to use it to its full extent. Tell us a bit about your job, your role as president of the Royal College. What does that involve doing? Uh, if I knew what the role of the president of the Royal College actually meant and involved, um, well, I'd be in a better place and I'm two months off demitting from the role. But that's the point. It technically has a job description. So technically, I am the chair of the trustees, i.e. council, and therefore... Uh, I chair council, I go to lots of other meetings, work across the faculties and the divisions in the four countries and with the international divisions. Um, I have meetings with the fellow officers where we look at core business of the college and then take it to council. But one of the main roles practically is lobbying uh, parliament. Uh, so I've got the privilege of lobbying parliament in England. Uh, the chairs of the divisions in the other countries who are soon to be vice presidents have the privilege of lobbying in their countries in England, Scotland, sorry, in, in Scotland, Ireland and um, Wales. And I suppose the other thing is it's dealing with the unexpected um, and you just don't know what's going to come through the door day in, day out. So um, listening to patients, users and carers who are happy with what psychiatrists do, who are unhappy with psychiatrists do. So I meet with relatives once a month with the chief exec where they want to tell us about things that they think we haven't done well, but they never want to do it in a blaming way. They just want us as psychiatrists to learn 
and do better. So for me, that's been one of the most important things that I've been doing, getting out to the membership across the country, trying to hear what they want. Um, I carry on with my blog, but sometimes I feel I'm in a world of my own because I rarely get many responses. And, and actually just getting from members what they want when at the moment we're in a period of austerity where psychiatrists and mental health services are under threat, where we're getting cuts upon cuts because we're still the easiest part of medicine to cut, and where even though we've got parity of esteem between mental and physical health in legislation, we don't have it in practice, and therefore we've got to keep on fighting for our members so they can deliver best service to patients. You said it's the easiest part of medicine to cut. Why is that? Well, it's been a tradition for 100 years. Uh, we are organised in a different sector, in mental health trusts. So acute trusts are always the big brothers, where if they run a bit short of money, anybody who's a commissioner finds it easier to take money off mental health and bail out the acute sector. I think we've been our own worst enemy, in that we've had our own in-house disputes about is it nature, is it nurture? Are medications evil? Is it all to do with psychological therapies? Where, for instance, cancer has had their disagreements, they have them behind closed doors, and they've got money 20 years ago we didn't get for research. So we've got a very limited opportunity with new medications in psychiatry without looking at repurposing drugs. We've not got the public image that other branches of medicine have got because everything we know about stigma. But again, there, I think we've got to stop stigmatising ourselves. We, every bit as important as the rest of medicine. And potentially, we can help the rest of medicine to save money and give better care to their patients. What did you mean by psychiatrists have got to stop stigmatising themselves? We're a group who sit and reflect and think and angst. And I think that's fine, and I think that's a good thing, because I think we're more able to see when we're doing things wrong and better able to see how to do things right. But I think the risk is that if you start thinking of yourself in a put-down position, you go into the position of learnt helplessness and you start behaving that way. Uh, and I just think we've got to assert ourselves. I think we've got to say loudly we are the right people in mental health to be leaders of services, not just at the level of um, becoming chief execs or medical directors, but leading individual services, because uniquely what we do as psychiatrists is we deal with complexity and we practice at the edge of uncertainty. And we're paid what we're paid for managing risk, and that's what we should be doing, leading teams. And I think we have to reassert ourselves in that role. When you say reassert ourselves in that role, what do you mean? I mean exactly what I say, reassert ourselves. We lost it 15 years ago when we drifted into new ways of working, when we were frightened that we wouldn't recruit enough psychiatrists. Well, that will always be a challenge. Uh, and I think we let go. Uh, and I think if you look, I think the rest of medicine did it. If you look at why Francis occurred, it was because medical leaders saw things going wrong but didn't speak out early enough didn't take a leadership role, and I think you have to look at that. We had our own Francis, we had Winterbourne View, and you know there were psychiatrists going into those establishments, but they were going in there to do a fixed role, and we're there to look at everything that's happening to our patient, to take a holistic view, measure and deal with need, and manage risk to improve outcomes. How is the college, or what is the role of the college in your view, in terms of supporting psychiatrists to take okay. more of a leadership role? I think we can do that several ways. One, we've got a faculty of leadership and management, and that's great, but it's got to go beyond that. 
we need to look at what we do in the uh, clinical quality assurance networks. So that's a way of actually monitoring our practice and making sure we drive up quality. We're heavily involved in the collaborating centre with the NICE guidelines. That's another way of driving up practice. We also have to support our members when things go just a little bit wrong. So we've got psychiatrist support, we've got external clinical advisory visits, but I think we need something else. So we need to be able to provide support to all stages of psychiatrists in training. I think we need to strengthen the first five years most difficult part of your career is the first five years as a consultant and we need to be able to offer those people more support in their career when they're learning all those new roles, having to get everything new and be able to deal with it and be looked to when things are going wrong. So we need to look the same at the other end of the career when we're going to finish in the NHS and we're going to be doing things in our so-called retirement when we're going to be working for the parole board, when we're going to do mental health tribunals. And I think the college has a duty which has been brought about, it per se is a duty, but has also been enhanced by revalidation and the demands that places to actually support people right the way through their career and through what are going to be the increasingly long middle years when we're not going to be able to retire as soon as I can. One of the things that uh, we've been doing is a series um, called um, Head Starters, where we interview young psychiatrists, mm -hmm. psychiatrists in training, and it's been very impressive their enthusiasm mm -hmm. uh, for the subject. Um, but this transition into the consultant role, mm -hmm. which is the transition into what I think you're referring to as more of a leadership role as mm -hmm. well, seems to be one of the key yep. areas of, of, of importance. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts about the college's relationship to that? Yes, we need a much more solid and uh, mandated support for um, young doctors who are in their first year as a consultant. So we need to follow through. We still, by and large, sit on consultant interviews, even though we don't... That, that, other providers don't have to do that now. And I think we should follow through to ensure what support um, young consultants get in that first year. Uh, I also think it's, it, it goes across the whole of, of medicine. You never, you're never going to feel, uh, unless you may be quite an unsafe practitioner, that you're ready to do the job. If you felt ready to do the job, I'd be worried about you. But there's always got to be this bit of anxiety and fear about going into something new and a new job. Uh, and I think that's what the whole of medicine needs. I, I, I despair that I see compassionate, enthusiastic people going into psychiatry and we sort of knock that out of them within the first five years. But I despair even more, if I'd been honest, about what we do to medical students. They come in, they're ready to save the world, save the patients, bright, compassionate, and by the end of five years training, um, I, I, people may disagree with this, we either have a small, arrogant cohort who I would regard as unsafe, or another group who've had everything knocked out of them. And what are we doing to help in psychiatry? Our wonderful medical psychotherapists are providing balance groups for medical students. So I'd like some ballot groups for um, early career consultant psychiatrists and for those of us who are about to drop off the end of our perch at the other end so that we can drop off with some dignity. One of the things that you've been talking about suggests to me that when you mentioned that the field's a bit more fragmented, unlike the area of cancer, for example, mm -hmm. where uni the people unified a bit more and as a result got more, maybe more research money and they, they held their disagreements behind closed doors, it, I do get a sense that you're, you're maybe hinting at the notion that there may be more conflict in psychiatry. And is that a way in which it differs from other medical specialties? And is there a role for the college in that? There's more conflict maybe between 
psychiatrists sometimes and their patients or, or other and their teams? Well, in strict confidence, as this isn't going out to anybody else, um, I, I've had the privilege of being part of the uh, Academy of Royal Medical Colleges, and the same conflicts sit in any other branch of medicine. I just think we angst about them and talk about them more. So there are things we disagree about, but I don't think they're gross. I mean, we still get stuck in the nature-nurture debate. We still get stuck in, in old-fashioned arguments that won't take us anywhere. We worry that too much of the money is going to go to um, you know, the wellness agenda and not enough to the severely mental ill. Relationship um, with patients, I think you should talk to the user carer group in the college. I mean, by and large, when I'm feeling miserable, if I want to go and get cheered up, I go and, I go and sit down with the user carer group because they say, get over yourself, get on with it, we need you. What we want to see is a psychiatrist up front when we're not well, we want to see them early on and we want you to look after our treatment. Uh, so I think, actually, are our patients are our greatest ally. Um, so... Um, I don't think it's conflict, just sometimes families get a bit dysfunctional and need a bit of help. I agree with you. The patients do want to see a psychiatrist, but in the National Health Service, that's increasingly difficult. They get, they get given other services other than seeing a psychiatrist. What are your thoughts about that? Well, they do, but that need not happen because I do believe in patient power. We're all patients, and at least in England, where we've got commissioning, I mean, other countries like Wales don't have commissioning, but in England, we've got commissioners and they're general practitioners. And you ask general practitioners what they want, and they want to talk to a psychiatrist on a Friday afternoon about a patient they've got great concerns about, and they want sensible advice off a consultant psychiatrist. So I just think we have to go with that. And people say, will it cost more? Well, it won't, because actually I believe that psychiatrist would give sounder, safer advice. That's no criticism of other disciplines. We're all trained in what we're trained in, to have expertise in what we have expertise in. And I think that would save money and it would save lives. Uh, and I think this goes to the heart of getting psychiatrists out into primary care and having enhanced primary care psychiatry, working with the general practitioners. It would be great. It's something many of us did who, who started work 30 years ago. We didn't call it anything, but I used to run a clinic in general practice. I used to run a clinic in probation, in social services. I went where I was needed, where I could be of most use. And if nobody wanted to see me that day, I got on with the paperwork because there was paperwork even in those days. Uh, one final question. Um, what about your own background in the particular specialty um, that, that your, your training is in and your specialism mm -hmm. is, child and adolescent psychiatry? Mm -hmm. Do you think that informs the way that you have been handling the role of, of President of Royal College? Yeah, un undoubtedly. I, I mean, I, th I, think it, I think it informs and affects it. So because I'm not a general adult psychiatrist, I did 18 months training in general adult, I think I probably overthink and worry about them because I don't want to underrepresent them because I'm not from that family. I'm a child and I'm a forensic psychiatrist, so child psychiatrists think in families and in groups and growing up in groups and how you get groups to function. I'm a forensic psychiatrist, so I, you know I can examine something in detail that would go on for hours, but have to produce one statement that will risk manage. So I think it's those dual skills of being child and forensic, which I hope has served me well, but it's for others to judge whilst I've been president in what could be euphemistically described as difficult times. Sue Bailey, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.